Good evening and welcome to Tucker Carlson. Tonight we're coming to you all week from Brazil. You may not have noticed, we didn't actually, but Brazil is the last significant country in the Western Hemisphere that has a pro-American government. And in a lot of ways, Brazil isn't that different from the United States. And it's an enormous place, bigger landmass than the continental U.S., huge population, beautiful, rich natural resources. And suddenly, like the United States over the last 15 years, Brazil has found itself dangerously dependent on China. So what exactly are the Chinese government's aims here in Brazil? And why isn't the Biden administration doing anything to stop the Chinese military from establishing a threatening new beachhead in our hemisphere? They seem to be abetting it. What is that exactly? We're investigating all of it for a brand new documentary that we're making now. We'll have it for you soon. But one of the reasons that so few people in the United States noticed that China is colonizing formerly independent countries so close to our shores is that we have, as they used to say, problems of our own here in the United States. The American economy, primarily, which is in real trouble right now. And it's not something we can fix with a cleverly crafted bailout, as we've done before. The problem here isn't that a few reckless quants on Wall Street did crazy things with credit default swaps. The problem feels deeper than that. It feels systemic. And you see it in what you buy. Everything, the prices of everything, are shooting beyond reach for a lot of people in the United States. That would include energy, food, durable goods, housing, education, credit. All of it is a lot more expensive than it was just recently. Why? Why has median rent in Manhattan jumped by 25% in a single year? Why has your grocery bill gone up by hundreds of dollars a month? Why can't you afford to fill your car anymore? Those are fair questions. It's not like we've run out of the commodities we need. The United States has a lot of them. It's a continental country. It stretches from the Atlantic to the Pacific. So we've got plenty of room for housing. We've got more than enough oil and gas within our own borders to be completely energy independent with some left over. We've got more fertile farmland than any country on the planet. Food should be cheap. So the problem is definitely not our resources. Our resources in the United States are abundant. The problem is our leaders. The things you need are too expensive to buy because politicians created inflation. And they did it for a simple reason. They'd racked up so much debt buying votes and enriching themselves and their families that they had no choice but to weaken the U.S. dollar in order to make the payments on the loans they took out. It's that simple. And then once inflation arrived, ideologues in the Biden administration immediately understood how it could be used. So since you can no longer afford to drive your car, you will have no choice but to accept their green energy scams. And that means their donors who run those scams will get richer and they will get control over the U.S. economy. So everyone wins except you. It's perfect. None of it happened by accident. This is a manufactured disaster. Now, in a normal country, few leaders would dare to pull off something this brazen and destructive. They'd be afraid to. They'd be flirting with revolution. It'd be too risky. And the people who run our country are fully aware of the risks, and they're very worried about it. If you're wondering why they're hyperventilating about January 6th, that's why. They seem afraid because they are afraid. To them, a crowd of angry people at the Capitol looks a lot like a foretaste of things to come. That's exactly why they're so desperate to take your guns away. It's why they're screaming at you about trans rights and systemic racism and the all-encompassing evil of the president of faraway Russia, huh? Why are they talking about them, these things? It seems confusing at first. What does any of that have to do with our actual problems here and improving your life? Well, none of it has anything to do with improving your life, and that's the point. 
They're hoping that if they keep screaming at you, you'll be too bewildered and too off balance to notice what is happening to the country around you, much less able to fight back against it. And just to make sure you're too bewildered to act as they scream, they shift the blame from themselves to you. So they're now pronouncing you guilty for the crimes that they committed. You've watched this happen with the economy. First, they told you that inflation wasn't real. You're imagining that, but you weren't. So then they explained that actually inflation is happening, but it's a good thing because you deserve it. You deserve to pay more for the things you buy. Why? Because your expectations were way too high. You pampered first world Karen. You expected to eat meat for dinner and take an annual vacation on commercial airliners that departed on time. What were you thinking? You expected to fill your tank or buy a sheet of plywood for less than 75 bucks. Huh? Talk about out of whack. You expected to be able to send your children to the public schools you pay for with the expectation they might learn something. You thought you could load your car in the Safeway parking lot with groceries you could afford without being shot to death by armed robbers. You imagined you could live in a country that resembled the place you grew up in, where people spoke English and didn't throw trash out the window or smoke fentanyl on the sidewalk. But it turns out, Mr. and Mrs. America, you expected too much. And that's your fault. In Nigeria, all of this is normal. So stop whining and eat your bugs. Bloomberg News actually wrote a column on this. Their recommendation was, if you want to save money, let your dog die. Seriously. They really said that. And they meant it, too. But apparently, you didn't get the message. You love your dog. So now they've gone further than that. Now they're telling you that you cannot have the one thing that most people want more than anything else, the one thing that biological instinct drives all of us to want, and that's children. The most reliable source of meaning and joy in human existence, a family, is now out of reach for the American middle class, and you should accept that is inevitable. In fact, you should embrace it. Our economy can no longer support your family. Sorry. Actually, that's wrong. They're not saying sorry. They wouldn't think of apologizing for that or anything else. What they want to do is force you to reset your unrealistic expectations. And that's what MSNBC did all this weekend. Watch. What does it cost to have a baby on your body, on your livelihood, and not just you, but your state and this country? Many economists and social scientists are telling us that the economic consequences of abortion restrictions are devastating for both individuals and wider society. According to the Institute for Women's Policy Research, at the national level, state-level abortion restrictions cost $105 billion per year because basically it reduces the labor force participation rate, how many people are in the workforce and drives down earning power. So it turns out many economists and social scientists have concluded that having kids is selfish and way too expensive, and that's your fault. So dial back your expectations of ever having a family. Thanks for telling us, MSNBC and Jolene Kent. Notice that no one on MSNBC ever blames the powerful for where we are. Apparently, the U.S. government had no role in, quote, reducing the labor force participation rate say, by shutting down the entire U.S. economy and firing anyone who didn't get their vax or turning cities into war zones or devaluing the U.S. dollar. None of that actually happened. It's not their fault. Wall Street and the Fed are blameless. The problem is you. The problem is that you selfishly want to have children, and children are bad for GDP. All the big corporations now agree on that. They're all now against human reproduction. Watch Joe Ling Kent explain more. 
But the other important financial question is if the birthing parent is able to travel and if they work for the right company and are seeking an abortion, more individuals we're seeing are going to need to rely on their employer, right, for that financial support to carry that out. Now, for example, Dick's Sporting Goods is now telling us they're promising $4,000 for any employee or family member on their insurance plan to access an abortion. And there's a long list of companies that are doing the same thing. You've got Levi's and Starbucks, Yelp, JP Morgan, and many others. But the point here is, Katie, is that these benefits are provided because these companies are willing to do it, not just because of their philosophy as a corporation, but because it makes financial sense for them. Dick's Sporting Goods will pay you $4,000 to abort your baby. How great is that? How great is Dick's Sporting Goods? You were going to have a baby, and now they're giving you four grand not to. And as JoLynn Kent just told us, that makes financial sense for corporate America. Well, yes, it does. Thanks, MSNBC. We lost our calculator and couldn't do the math on that. It turns out the companies have done the math, and they'd rather pay female employees $4,000 for every abortion they have. That's cheaper than footing the bill for, say, parental leave or adding new dependents onto the company health care plan. Babies are expensive. It's a lot cheaper to get rid of them, has concluded the HR department at Dick's Sporting Goods. But keep in mind, this is a highly progressive movement. When you have to bribe employees not to have their own family, what you're really doing is liberating them. And if you doubt that, Here's corporate America's spokesman, Andrew Ross Sorkin of CNBC, with the message once more. The real challenge is going to be for the smaller companies that can't afford to do this uh, and for the employees of those companies that are unable to get access that way. And so there's going to be a tale of two worlds. If you work for a Fortune 500 company in America today, uh, you very well may get this type of health care uh, as a benefit. Smaller companies may not. And I asked the question over the weekend to a lot of executives and CEOs about this. Would you leave the state? Would you leave those states where those trigger laws uh, are in effect? And the answer is no. Um, the view is that this is, dare I say, a cost of doing business. And I was, uh, I have to admit, disappointed that there was no, uh, nobody that I spoke to over the weekend who said, you know what, uh, we have a, a, a moral issue about this. Yeah, it's very disappointing that all companies aren't paying their employees to abort their children. It's a sign of love, really, because when you love someone, your main concern is that they never reproduce, that they never create more human beings just like them. That's a sign of love. So according to Andrew Ross Sorkin, corporations, and this is not ghoulish or creepy, so settle down, choke back your gag reflexes. Corporations in states that outlaw abortions are unethical. The CEOs of those companies are immoral because they're not paying for enough abortion. Andrew Ross Sorkin judges them. You know who he doesn't judge? His friend Janet Yellen. Now, Janet Yellen isn't blameless. She lied to Americans for years about the inflation that she created. She single-handedly destroyed our economy more than any other single American. But that's not a problem for Andrew Ross Sorkin. It's not like she wasn't paying for her employees' abortions. And we're quoting. You know, if you're Janet Yellen... She's in a political job, and they wanted to run the economy a little hot. That's what Sorkin said recently. And by running it a little hot, he meant destroy it and make the U.S. dollar worthless. It's just a little mistake. It's not a big deal. It's not immoral. <laughs> Making you poor was a mistake. And don't worry, Janet Yellen has never even considered apologizing for it. No. 
What she's telling you is now that you're poor, shut up and abort your child because times are tough and you got to get back to work. There's a war on. Do your duty. I believe that eliminating the right of women to make decisions about when and whether to have children would have very damaging effects um, on the economy and would set women back decades. Yeah, very damaging to the economy, having all those children, all that new life. This is the America that Janet Yellen has created with the help of her friends in the media. So you can't afford to get married or buy a house or have children, much less raise them yourself in a two-parent family on a single income, as every generation of Americans did for hundreds of years in this country. But for you, none of that is possible. Only private equity people, people like Janet Yellen, Andrew Ross Sorkin, can afford normal families now. But for you, things are very different. For you, life is low-paid drone work at some soulless digital company punctuated only by brunch on the weekends and Netflix and white wine at night forever until you die alone with no descendants to remember you. Does the prospect of that fill you with joy or does it make you a little anxious? If it makes you a little anxious, no problem because we have Xanax. Also, we've legalized weed so you can consider yourself liberated. What we just described is not an overstatement. That is the life that millions of college-educated young people in this country are living right now and are facing for the foreseeable future, which is to say forever. But our leaders don't seem concerned in the least about it. They don't detect a spiritual crisis in America or a lack of inherent meaning. Suicide spike, they have no idea why. They don't want to know. They don't even notice a dramatic drop in birth rates in America, which you think they would care about since they run the country. And that's the clearest sign of societal health. If people aren't reproducing, maybe something's wrong. But no, it doesn't bother them. In fact, they're for it. Don't have kids. And if you do, make certain they can't reproduce themselves. Why don't you go ahead and chemically castrate them? That's what they're now telling you. Watch the Admiral. Gender affirming care is life saving, medically necessary age-appropriate and a critical tool for health care providers. As a pediatrician, when it comes to making sure kids are healthy and happy, I know how important care that affirmed someone's true identity can be. So you made the mistake of having children, your own family. But there is something you can do. You can make sure you never have grandchildren. You can pump your children full of pharma-derived poison that makes certain they can never reproduce, and you should, because that's life-affirming care. So why are they telling you this? Well, simple. The more atomized and unhappy American society becomes, the easier it is for them to control. Fewer marriages and babies and family-owned homes means more rootless and dissatisfied people. It means an entire nation of desperately unhappy grad students. Sandy Cortez could become the queen of a country like that. So bring it on! More solitude, less human connection, less meaning, fewer babies. That's what they want, obviously. Here's what they don't want. They don't want more Christy Pauls. This weekend, Christy Paul announced that she's quitting her job because family is more important than serving corporate America. Here she is. I just could not be who I needed to be for my family is what it really came down to. I was tired of being tired. And I told them, look, let's be honest. The work we do is important. The work you do is important wherever you go. Whatever you do every day, it's important work. But at the end of the day, somebody's gonna sit in this seat and I'm gonna leave and the show will go on as it should. But nobody else is gonna be my kid's mom. 
and nobody else is going to be my husband's wife or my parents' children, and I need to be fully, fully present there. Nobody else is going to be your kid's mom? Have you noticed our immigration levels recently? We're bringing people in to be your kid's mom. And by the way, shouldn't you be working for Facebook? Do your duty. That's what we're telling young people. We're telling them we're not going to do a thing to make it easier for you to have your own children or your own family because families are for the rich and the poor. Families are for the tech tycoons in Napa. They've got a ton of kids. And for the Haitians huddled underneath the bridges at the border in South Texas, they've got a ton of kids too. But for you, a middle-class American, sorry, your deepest desires are far beyond reach. Citibank will pay you not to reproduce so you can uh, remain alone in your cube. And if you're not fortunate enough to work at Citibank, Sandy Cortez will step in and for the first time in her life build something. In this case, she'll build government-funded abortion camps on federal land just to make sure you never have to experience the burden of holding your own baby or being unconditionally loved by your own children. You're liberated now. Let's celebrate with brunch. You have to wonder, how long before Democrats sponsor legislation to distribute free cats to young people in the cities, placebos to replace the families they can no longer have? That's coming, along with SSRIs in the water supply, so you don't have to think too much about it. We're finally getting to see what their utopia looks like. Hope you feel better. Subscribe to the Fox News YouTube channel to catch our nightly opens. Stories that are changing the world and changing your life. From Tucker Carlson tonight. I never learned why media's Disney hates boys. Mr. Reagan. So there's a new trend in Hollywood, at least when it comes to sequels and reboots. It's called the bait and switch. The idea is that you make a film or show which features an existing character, a beloved character, a character with a big fan base, and you market this project as being about this existing character. But you don't actually make the project about this character. You actually make the project about a new character. But not just any character. This character has to be very specifically a woman, and if possible, a woman of color. Recently, they did this with Doctor Strange. They made a whole Doctor Strange movie about a Mexican-American girl with lesbian parents. That's not a joke. That is the real backstory of the character. Hawkeye did this, bring in Haley Steinfeld to take over the character. Halo, a show based around the popular video game franchise, just killed off the male lead and replaced him with a chick, naturally. Loki, a show about Loki, but also a girl version of Loki, who is better than Loki, in every way imaginable, of course. Picard, a show that pretends to be about Jean-Luc Picard from Star Trek The Next Generation, but is actually a show about a bunch of women. I won't let you sacrifice yourself. You won't let me? James Bond, the 007 designation, was recently transferred to a black woman, and then they literally killed off James Bond. The world's moved on, Commander Bond. Indiana Jones. It's been reported that they're killing off Indiana Jones in the next film and replacing him with a woman. And these are just a few examples. Of course, they already did this with Star Wars by replacing Luke Skywalker with Rey, but now they've done it again, this time in a new Star Wars show called Obi-Wan Kenobi. You see, Obi-Wan Kenobi is not about Obi-Wan Kenobi. It's about this chick, a character called Reva. Now, when I first heard about this show, I thought, well, maybe it might be okay. But I was mistaken. It is awful. And after watching it, I can tell you one thing about the people over at Disney and Lucasfilm who produced this garbage. They very clearly hate boys.
Now, you may be aware that Disney has become an evil, woke corporation in recent years. They've been injecting leftist propaganda into children's projects. This was famously admitted to in a recently leaked conference call. The showrunners were super welcoming, Meredith Roberts, and like the, the our leadership over there has been so welcoming to like my like not at all secret gay agenda. Kind of the only way to have these like canonical trans characters, canonical asexual characters, canonical bisexual characters is to give them stories where they can like be their whole selves. So they're trying to influence children with their gay agenda, feminist agenda, racist agenda against straight white men and their Marxist ideas. And they reject their own earlier work as it contains traditional Christian European values, values that leftists hate. Disney's new radical left attempt to indoctrinate children has obviously caused a drop off in their subscribers to the Disney Plus streaming service. Now, Disney owns Lucasfilm, the company in charge of Star Wars, and so Star Wars is now, as we know, terrible. But because of the success of Jon Favreau's Mandalorian series, there is now a war within Disney over the direction of Star Wars, a war between the influence of Kathleen Kennedy and Jon Favreau. Kathleen Kennedy is the president of Lucasfilm, and she's a woke, radical feminist. Jon Favreau is not woke, and he has created, in my opinion, the only good Star Wars project since Return of the Jedi. Since the success of Mandalorian, Favreau has been given a lot of power over at Disney to create more projects. Sadly, his second show, Boba Fett, was a total disaster. And one project that I was excited to hear about was this new Obi-Wan series, Obi-Wan Kenobi, classic Star Wars character. Now, I'm not a fan of the prequels. In fact, I rather detest them. However, Ewan McGregor is a good actor, and under Jon Favreau, this show could be awesome. And I didn't want any spoilers. I didn't want to hear anything about it. I wanted to go in knowing nothing. So I avoided the news. I avoided YouTube videos about this show. I went in clean. A few weeks ago, the first two episodes premiered and I eagerly flipped it on. And within the first few seconds, I realized something was very wrong. The opening shot swings past a little black Jedi girl in her Jedi class learning to use the Force. Her teacher an Asian woman. Had this been any other franchise, I probably wouldn't have thought all that much about it. But as it's Star Wars, I know Kathleen Kennedy is obsessed with women and non-white people, and so this seemed very intentional. In Luke's prequels, it seemed that the Jedi children were primarily white boys. Not anymore. Kathleen Kennedy has always had this obsession with making the Force female or whatever, and even within the first few seconds, this show reeked of her feminist stench. The next scene shows these elite Imperial officers known as the Inquisitors hunting down Jedi. The Grand Inquisitor is this white guy, very white, because as we all know, all of the most evil people in the universe are white men. But the best Inquisitor, the toughest and the smartest and the most aggressive, is the chick that I showed you at the top of the show, Reva. And she's so aggressive that one of the other Inquisitors, this Asian dude, and also the Grand Inquisitor himself, they're both like, why are you so crazy? Calm down. <laughs> but she's clearly better at using the Force than the other two. She's smarter, she's more effective than either of them, and this is all illustrated in a sequence in which she tricks this Jedi that they're hunting into revealing himself by attacking an innocent civilian. This Jedi is compelled to stop her, after which he's revealed and they hunt him down and they kill him. Now it's very obvious right from the get-go that this chick is supposed to be the main character of this show. She's the character we are supposed to pay attention to. And it seemed to me that as she's black, it's very likely that she was cast because of diversity and to promote 
the message that, you know, black women are amazing. So I'm sitting there, I'm thinking, if that's true, if that's why they cast her, and that's the message they're trying to send out to the audience, then this evil woman has got to be a redemption character. That is, she's got to, at some point in the series, turn good. Either that or it's got to be revealed that she's actually always been good all along and that she's just pretending to be bad or something like that. And it was at this point that I paused the show and I looked up on my phone who actually produced the project. And it is not, to my shock and horror, John Favreau. This, sadly, is a Kathleen Kennedy production. I felt sick. Okay, so before the show really even started, I already knew that it was woke garbage. But I thought, let's carry on. Let's see just how woke, just how garbage this show is going to be. And boy, oh boy, not only was this show woke and absolute garbage, it was worse than I could have ever imagined. Because they did four things here that really betrayed the fans. First, as I mentioned before, this show is a bait and switch. It's not even about Obi-Wan Kenobi. It's a bait and switch. They're pretending it's about Obi-Wan. It's called Obi-Wan, but it's really about this Reva chick. Secondly, the whole project is saturated with woke propaganda, and I'll go into some of this later, but basically, when you try to force-feed fans leftist political messages, it literally ruins whatever entertainment the fans might have gotten out of the project. Thirdly, the production value is terrible. Now listen to this. Each episode of this show had a budget of between 20 and 25 million dollars. That's per episode. I mean, this thing's got to look amazing, right? It does not. The best example that I can give you to illustrate just how unbelievably bad the production value is, is this laser cannon. So this is a large piece of military equipment. It takes several stormtroopers to move it around. Now it floats in the air, so obviously it should move very smoothly over any surface, right? But even so, I mean, it's got to weigh several tons. Now, of course, this is a spatial effect. It's going to be made out of something like styrofoam. But it has to look real. It has to look substantial. It has to look like it weighs a ton and then uh, yet floats smoothly over the ground. But watch this. <laughs> this thing is like wobbling all over the place. It looks like it's made out of cardboard and bubble gum. It looks like a cosplay prop. It literally looks like a prop that a fan would make. And in fact, I would say that if you watch, there's a show from one of the Mythbusters guys where he makes props and stuff. I think he could make a prop about a thousand times better than this. And he is not getting paid thousands of dollars to do that. $25 million an episode for a wobbly cannon. <laughs> but that's not, I mean, look, that's not the only bad thing. I mean, just everything in the show is terrible. There's a scene where uh, Reva does like parkour over some buildings, but obviously the actor is not trained in parkour, so they've got her rigged up to wires. Just, I mean, it looks like she's on wires. It doesn't look convincing at all. These are just a couple examples, but the whole show is like this. And the fourth thing, the fourth problem that I have, the fourth betrayal of fans, I would say, is that the story is terrible. The basic story is that Princess Leia, as a little child, is kidnapped. And so Obi-Wan has to go rescue her and bring her back to safety. Meanwhile, Darth Vader is hunting down Obi-Wan Kenobi, and he wants to kill him. Okay, well, that seems fine. Except this show is basically a complete ripoff of The Mandalorian. Mandalorian was a huge hit. In my opinion, Mandalorian is the first good Star Wars project since The Return of the Jedi. And the concept of that show was genius. This big, tough 
Mandalorian reluctantly protects the vulnerable baby Yoda. This is a film trope that's been around for a very long time. The most famous iteration may be the Luke Besson film The Professional, in which a hitman has to take care of a little girl played by Natalie Portman. More recently, this was done in the last Wolverine film, Logan. And even way back in like 1937, there was this film with uh, Freddie Bartholomew and Spencer Tracy. It was called Captain's Courageous. This is a very, very popular film. It was an adaptation of Kipling's novel from 1897, Captain's Courageous. But you know what? Probably since humans have been telling stories, since like the dawn of time, this adoptive father and son dynamic or a father-daughter dynamic has been told, right? So this is what I think happened. I think Kathleen Kennedy wanted a hit. She, she knows she's hated by fans and Jon Favreau is loved because of The Mandalorian. And so she's been desperate to produce something as successful as The Mandalorian. And so when somebody proposed doing an Obi-Wan Kenobi show, she must have just been like, fantastic, it's a sure hit. And then when somebody said, hey, you know what? Mandalorian is a grown man taking care of Baby Yoda. And, and people really love that. There's Baby Yoda's stuffed animals all over the place. People got pictures of them on their computer and stuff. This is a phenomenon. Why don't we copy that show, but instead of a Mandalorian and a Baby Yoda, we'll do it better. We'll do the same thing, but with Obi-Wan Kenobi and Baby Princess Leia. <laughs> well, Kathleen Kennedy must have peed herself with excitement. This was a surefire hit. There is no way that she could mess that up. But, oh, there was a way, and she found it. And that way, well... It's the same way she messed up the sequels and every other project that she has helmed so far. She injected her woke political messages. She just had to make the show about an amazing black woman. She couldn't have left that out. She, she couldn't have just made it about Obi-Wan. I mean, how could she? He's a white man. White men are awful. We can't just tell a great story about him. We've got to find a way to make the whole thing about women. And black people. In fact, Kathleen Kennedy is so committed to injecting black characters into these projects that she doesn't even care if they're completely wrong for the part. And you probably think that I'm talking about Reva, and I am, of course, but I want to illustrate this problem with another character. This guy. This guy is called Roken, and he's supposed to be some kind of important member of this rebel group called The Path. And uh, for this part, they cast O'Shea Jackson Jr. That's right, Ice Cube's son. Now, this guy doesn't talk like a typical Star Wars character. No, no. This guy talks, as you might expect, like Ice Cube. <laughs> and the Inquisitor's founder anyway. So I know exactly what the Empire can do. I mean, that kind of attitude, that kind of cultural language, that kind of accent, it doesn't fit into the Star Wars universe. It's off-putting. It's awful. It ruins the project. Now, Disney likes to pretend that whenever fans criticize a black character or a female character, that it's because... You know, we're all racist and sexist or whatever. But no, no, that is not why we're complaining. We're complaining because you prioritized pushing a political message over writing good stories or casting appropriate actors. Everybody loves Lando Calrissian, and he speaks in a way that's appropriate for Star Wars. Hello, what have we here? Welcome, I'm Lando Calrissian. I'm the administrator of this facility. Now, I didn't think that it was a good idea to cast Samuel L. Jackson as a Jedi back in the 90s because he very famously speaks like Samuel L. Jackson. But at least he tried to speak with a neutral accent to sound somewhat appropriate for the project. It's like they have no idea how ridiculous it is. And this is the basic problem that people have with Reva, except in her case, it's not that she th seems like she's culturally inappropriate, but rather she's not actually intimidating. They've written a character who's supposed to be this 
super powerful force wielding villain who's hell bent on hunting Jedi. You know, she's a bit of a maniac and we're all supposed to think that she's super scary, but she's not. She's constantly shouting at everybody, but she sounds like this. Fire! Light him up! Where is he? Don't admit you're a spy. Enough! There's just nothing scary about this. You know what? Actually, this reminds me of another project a long, from a long time ago at Disney. They did a kind of Star Wars knockoff. Why don't we play a clip from that? Listen, the command considers us a bunch of losers, but we're gonna do it right this time because we're the best. <laughs> so yeah, so that was like a Star Wars inspired ride at Disney called Captain EO, I think it was. Uh, with Michael Jackson, and Michael Jackson sounded about as tough as as Reva does in this new series. So, so I guess that's just the voice that Star Wars likes to inject in its Star Wars-like materials. I don't know. Anyway, the point is, there is nothing scary about this woman, about this character, about this actor. Now, in the original Star Wars trilogy, Darth Vader was played by a guy named David Prowse, and this guy had a very intimidating frame. He was tall, and he moved in an intimidating way. But his voice was not particularly scary. The original onset recordings can be found on YouTube, and you can hear for yourself that this was a real problem. Where is the data you intercepted? What have you done with those information tapes? We intercepted no information. Where are those tapes? Only the commander knows that. This ship carries the crest of Alderaan. Was there any of the royal family on board? Who were you carrying? His voice just sounded weak. So when it came time to record the lines cleanly in the recording studio, they didn't bring in David Prowse. They brought in a young actor by the name of James Earl Jones. And this voice has become one of the most iconic voices in all of cinema. When I was a young boy, I genuinely thought that Darth Vader was the scariest villain of all time. And much of it was due to that voice. You have failed me for the last time. But apparently Kathleen Kennedy never heard that story because when she went to cast Scary Villain, she cast this. Where is he? As soon as this character was on screen and I looked up and found out that this was a Kathleen Kennedy production, I knew this was a bait and switch. I knew that this was not going to be about Obi-Wan Kenobi, but rather it was going to be about this new character, Reva. And she was going to be a redemption character and turn good or turn out to have always been good and that they were going to try to make her into this great new heroic character. And then after this Obi-Wan series was over... My prediction was that they were going to try to give her her own show. That was what instantly came to my mind. And guess what? In episode five, what happens? Well, it turns out Reva's a good guy. <laughs> Reva doesn't actually hate the Jedi. She hates Vader. She's been pretending to be evil in order to trick Darth Vader into trusting her so that she can eventually kill him. <laughs> wow, what an awesome chick. We've seen her cut an innocent woman's hand off, threaten to murder people, and hunt down and execute a Jedi, though I'm not sure that that was her doing personally, but clearly it's something that she would be fine doing. And Oh, and she also kidnapped Princess Leia and almost tortured her to death. You did this to yourself! But we're all supposed to just think that, you know, she's the bestest ever because secretly she was doing all of this to kill Darth Vader in the end. The ends justify the means. Great message, Disney. Not really surprising, though, because this is the Democrat philosophy, after all. Hatred never builds anything good. It just tears good things down. Well, that's it for me. And remember, it's not that our liberal Hollywood friends are ignorant. It's just that they hate straight white men. 
Good night. It seemed to me that we'd begun reversing the order of things. That through more and more rules and regulations and confiscatory taxes, the government was taking more of our money, more of our options, and more of our freedom. There's a clear cause and effect here that is as neat and predictable as a law of physics. As government expands, liberty contracts. This is Ann Coulter Substack, and now we're going to turn to guns. It's been a bang-up week for for gun rights, uh, and I again say our Supreme Court justices need bodyguards. Please fund them, conservatives. Please fund them. Please protect these men. Um, because the Supreme Court is is protecting our rights, while, what is it, a dozen Republicans, and of course all Democrats, are busy in Congress trying to take them away. They take them away, Supreme Court brings them back. Uh, the, the case at issue um, before the Supreme Court was everyone knew how it was going to come out. The Supreme Court has already ruled in Heller that that Americans, individuals, have a personal, private right to own, to bear arms in their homes for self-defense. That case happened to be limited by the facts to having a gun in your home. You have a constitutional right to it. That is is something, by the way, even the most left-wing law professors concluded long before the Supreme Court got around to announcing it. Um, It was Sanford Levinson at University of Texas and Akhil Lamar at Yale. They go into this into their research on the history of the Second Amendment and, oh, come on, the founders just meant this was for militias and I'm going to go prove it. And then they go look at it and come back and say, oh, yeah, I was wrong. They meant an individual right to bear arms. So everyone knew bearing obviously means carrying. So it has to be more than just in your home. Most states already understood that. Of course, the states of New York and California and a few others pretended, no, we think it's just in your home. So um, this is essentially a right to conceal carry. That's what you're talking about. Bearing arms outside your home, the most likely place you're going to be in danger where you need the gun. Uh, And uh, New York's big argument was, um, no, you can get a concealed carry. Um, two, two-thirds of all people who apply get one. Two-thirds. Well, first of all, one-third is a lot to be turned down, particularly when you consider who's applying for concealed carry. I don't think any convicted felons are, huh, I wonder if this will work. Let me try to get a concealed carry gun. Um, there are people who need them, who are applying for them, and one-third have been turned down. I would also like... Um, to know uh, how long it took those two-thirds who got them to get them and how much it cost. As usual, the people who need them most, um, law-abiding people who live in poor neighborhoods, no, they can't afford to spend, you know, take two weeks off of work and to spend an extra $200, $300, $500 to be able to exercise their Second Amendment right to have a gun. Well, that right was restored to them this week. Thank you, Supreme Court. Um, I thought I would mention, <laughs> I almost said this yesterday on Piers Morgan's show, he, he mentioned um, 
He was saying that Americans get especially upset if you have a British accent and you challenge their right to bear arms and, oh, they get very testy with us British. Um, and I wanted to tell him, no, 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 it's not just the British. I get ticked off when any non-American talks to me about my right to bear arms. Um, and in fact, when I came down to make my coffee the morning of the gun decision, I'm listening in the background to, uh, I don't know, Jose Diaz Ballart on MSNBC describing the gun decision. And I just thought to myself, oh, fantastic. I'm going to have to spend a day listening to immigrants. Tell me about my constitutional rights, which is why I'd like to get in one more plug for immigrants. Wait three generations before you start bossing us around. We have a magnificently successful country. It was successful before you came. It would have been successful if you hadn't come. And contrary to the uh, oft-claimed <laughs> promise from the open borders crowd at places like the Wall Street Journal that Hispanics are natural Republicans. They're natural Republicans. No, poll after poll after poll has shown that immigrants and Hispanics in particular um, do not have any particular affinity for the First or Second Amendment. They do think speech can be banned. They do think people shouldn't have a right to bear arms. And for the soulless Wall Street types, Hispanics also don't have a problem with big government. So look forward to your taxes going up. Um, immigrants wait three generations. It takes a while to be imbued with the American values. We know we're not like other countries. We're better than other countries, and we would like to keep it that way. Three generations. Then you can start you can start bossing around, us around. Otherwise, I mean, it's like you invite a guest to your home, and uh, you know, suddenly, okay, get all the kids in the dining room. We're going to rename the kids. And this wainscoting, it has got to go. The wallpaper, it's so tacky. No, you're a guest. You've been invited into our, and our house is fine. Our kids' names are fine. Uh, one point I, I briefly alluded to there, I want to return to, oh my gosh, our concealed carry permit holders, not criminals. First, common sense. <laughs> no one is going to give to get, turn over all the information you have to turn over in order to get a concealed carry license. Well, got my concealed carry license. That's step one. Step two, now I commit a crime. No, you don't commit a crime with a concealed carry license. And in fact, a very famous stat that has gone around and, and been falsely debunked, which is the main point of the next thing I want to say about this, um, how the media fact checkers, fact checkers, the many ways they lie and you can never, ever believe them, in particular, PolitiFact. So one of our favorite facts is um, we, we um, Second Amendment lovers um, and self-defense promoters uh, is that cops commit more crimes than concealed carry permit holders do. This was a statistic, I think, both in Wayne LaPierre's book and then, of course, the inestimable economist, John Lott, um, ran it down, ran the numbers, put it in his book. So then we have PolitiFacts coming along. Um, Fact-checked. False. False. Okay, what places like PolitiFact are counting on is that you will not read the details. 
These are, if you actually read how they have fact-checked John Lott, it's, it's, cops are not only more likely to commit crimes with guns, Lott estimated it was police were um, seven to 10 times more likely to make, commit crimes than concealed carry permit holders. The, the result of the fact-checked is, um, no, actually, they're probably more like 20 or 30 times more likely to commit crimes. That's the fact check false. And here, let me explain how that works. One, one, what, what Lot compared was the number of concealed carry permits that had been revoked. Um, I wouldn't expect you to know this, but almost every concealed carry permit revocation has nothing to do with a crime. It certainly has nothing to do with the gun. It's not filling out the paperwork on time. It's making a sexist remark. Um, <laughs> It's maybe accidentally walking into a DMV and forgetting you had your concealed carry permit with or weapon with you. Um, it's never for committing a crime. Uh, so he's lot is already way overcounting the number of crimes by counting any revocation of a concealed carry permit. But number two, and this is the one PolitiFact goes to, they checked with what Lot looked at was, there was a big study at University of Bowling Green where they looked at how many police had been arrested for crimes. Um, so PolitiFact goes and checks with the professors um, involved in the study. There was a team that did it. And uh Luckily, professors are all left wing, so they'll feed you the sound bite you need. Um, it turns out, this is from his dad on crimes, came from research by Philip Stinson, a criminal justice professor at Bowling Green State University. Stinson told PolitiFact that Lott failed to note that Stimson was reporting the number of cases, not the number of individual officers involved. Are you following that? So you could have three cops, four cops, 10 cops committing a crime. Stinson and therefore Lot counted that as one crime. <laughs> That's one crime. You can't have a case without at least one cop committing a crime. But you could have a case with lots of cops committing the crime. So Lot is underestimating the number of cops who have committed crimes. Secondly, some officers are arrested more than once, and some have more than one arrest case because of multiple victims. Okay, I'm counting. Well, that's either, again, underestimating the number of cops who have been arrested for crimes, or actually, I think it's getting it right. If you have one cop who's committed two crimes, I'm sorry, I'm counting that as two crimes. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm going with two crimes on that one. Uh, it's like, it's like Lot, um, you know, a, or me, a big Yankees supporter. I start bragging. The Yankees crushed the Cardinals last night. 10 to 1. The score was 10 to 1. And PolitiFact, PolitiFact, false, false. We have checked that. Coulter mangled her numbers. And then you look at the details and it turns out, no, the Yankees whooped the C Cardinals 100 to 1. That's the PolitiFact checked on this. So, yes, cops commit a lot more crimes than concealed carry permit holders. Um, every time a concealed carry permit law is about to go through Florida, Texas, Nevada, for example, those were three of the um, 
three of the pioneer states on concealed carry permits. There are, there are individuals and groups that line up to, to warn of what's going to happen. Big predictions. Oh, oh, a road raid incident is going to turn into a shooting match and a man's going to get mad at his wife because dinner's not ready on time. Uh, this has never materialized. And in fact, in all three of those states, Florida, Texas, and Nevada, the leader of the anti-concealed carry permit movement, three different guys, saying, oh, oh, if we have guns around, little disputes will become shooting matches. A year later or two years later, a few years later, every single one of them admitted I was wrong. This didn't happen. It doesn't happen. Um, to move on to the moronic gun law just passed by Congress, uh, the main thing it does is um, spend a lot of money on utterly useless stuff. Because don't worry, there's no inflation. Uh, and I remind my, my avid viewers, listeners, and readers, uh, what's, what's going to hold Republicans back and what looks like are going to be some really good midterms for them? The Republicans are going to hold themselves back. There's the $40 billion for Ukraine, and now there's this moronic gun law. Wow, thanks, Republicans. Um, now, of course, every Democrat voted for the moronic gun law, and it was only about 12 senators and who knows how many members of Congress. Hope they're all taken out. Um, but I, I don't know if you've noticed we're suffering massive inflation right now. Yeah, a big part of it is... The President Biden shutting down all sources of fuel, therefore gas prices through the roof, therefore inflation in everything you buy, because it doesn't grow on the store shelves, it, it's got to be trucked there, at prices through the roof. Um, but now we're going to dump yet more money on the states. Couldn't they just take some of the money we gave them last time and for something that also, we've just got a lesson in how moronic this is. They're going to be spending it on hiring yet more unionized government employees, mental health resource officers, because um, unionized government employees just performed so magnificently well in Uvalde. Yes, the, the, um, the school armed guard, when the mass shooter came in, he was at home. And guess what? He can't be fired. He's a government unionized employee. Uh, the police, well, we know about the police. The police stood outside for 90 minutes while the kids are trapped in with the crazed, psychopathic mass shooter. They did not act. Now, if this school had hired a security company, we want you guys to rush in if there's any trouble. An ace security company had stood outside the classroom door for 90 minutes. You think that there would be any question about them being fired? Not a police officer. He's a unionized government employee. Now, I like police officers. I'm not with, with the left on this. But the point is, if we're going to have unionized government employees, it better be damn necessary. It better be national defense after we're attacked. It better be police on the street, not, oh, we're going to have mental health resource officers. I would um, 
also remind you, James Holmes, the mass shooter in the Aurora, Colorado movie theater, gun-free zone, uh, you know, showed up dressed as the Joker. You probably remember his... um, actually remember all of their mug shots if they lived. And if not their mug shots, then the videos they, they posted on Snapchat or online before they did their shootings, every single one of them was a psychopath. You could see that from 50 yards. Uh, mental health counseling didn't do any good. James Holmes, the Joker, was seeing a shrink. The shrink got so afraid of him, she fired him, refused to take... Lock and load. This is Steve Dace. The Steve Day Show. And finally, the devil, Satan himself, holds a press conference after his latest big loss. We went out there, we, we gave it our all. Uh, with fantastic offensive game, but ultimately the good guys and, uh, and Justice Roberts came in clutch. Played a better game. So let's, uh, let's take some questions. Uh, you, you there with the teeth. Satan, it seemed like you had it in the bag with Roe on lockdown for 50 years. What went wrong out there? Yeah, yeah, thank you, thank you for the question. Um, you know, we got to look on the bright side here. We, we put up some incredible numbers. Over 60 million PBAs, that's preborn babies aborted for the late person. It's an absolute world record. Uh, yeah, I can't take all the credit though. This is a team sport and uh, you got an incredible team, you know, got Planned Parenthood. Moloch, Nancy Pelosi, they all made this possible. It didn't go the way that we uh, wanted this time. But in the end, we still have a championship team of demons, devils, and Democrats out there. And you know, there's always, uh, there's always next season. Excuse me, the devil, uh, what are your plans for the health franchise going forward? Excellent question. Uh, obviously, this is a rebuilding year for us. We're going we're gonna to build back better. That's the Babylon Bee, and that's what happened while we were away. Wow. I <laughs> not Wow. Let's welcome in the weekly prophet of woe and lamentation, Daniel Horowitz. It is good to see you, my friend. And if you're not, you know, if you, if you don't listen to Daniel's podcast, you're, you are missing out. I mean, it is, it's basically everything you get here. It's just, I don't interrupt him. And it's 30 to 60 minutes of straight woe and lamentation where Daniel segues between topics by dropping truly disgusting. <laughs> All right. That's, that's how he segues between topics. <laughs> so that's a pretty adequate description of your podcast. Don't you think Daniel, you know, you got to do something for the blood clotting. So I figure you get it kind of moving in my show and you know, maybe it's a good anticoagulant. There you go. There you go. Anticoagulant humor. You'll only find it on Daniel Horowitz's podcast. Daniel is the science. Yes. Um, he is the, I am the anticoagulant. And, and you know what? Since Todd went there, because I didn't get a chance to bring this up at the top of the show, I did not intend to talk about this, but brother, we have to address. Last week, it was Anthony Fauci. I'm feeling totally fine, mild symptoms, despite my four jabs, and I'm on Paxlovid. This week, it's, well, I'm the, after taking Paxlovid, the symptoms are for my COVID are back. I, I just, I have to give you a moment to comment on that. 
Steve, there's no way statistically this is possible to happen by accident that everything they do, every last thing they do. There was a New York Times article recently that the plexiglass might have made it worse to every last thing they did from beginning to end had negative efficacy and makes it come back. Mm. I mean, folks, this is unbelievable. And, and, you know, you could just get it like water for free at pharmacies, whereas now they're gunning for. Uh, they're going to take hydroxychloroquine off the market now. They, they claim it destroys your heart, even for rheumatoid arthritis and everything. Um, I mean, yeah, th this is this is the time we're living in. And it's just it's just a affirmation that it works, Steve. I mean, the more you inject, the more you infect. And it just works. I mean, it's got to be working. It leaves what I know is, the Paxlovid leaves a metallic taste in your mouth for a while. So I guess it's working. <laughs> You know, the heavy metals, you know, <laughs> no harm there. <laughs> Just in case you got a placebo from the shot, you know, <laughs> play cleanup there. You know, look, you got to have fun with this stuff. <laughs> it's like, so you get, you, get, you get a filling is what you're saying. It's like getting a filling in your teeth that, you get, that, that kills two birds with one stone, literally. Right? This is Abbott and Costello. We need to take this to Vegas. This is gold Jerry. <laughs> <laughs> oh, let, let, let's let's contemplate a very scary thought it is actually working looking at birth rates in germany switzerland shanghai it is working have you can have, have you considered that one my friend I, I know that you have that it is actually this is all working exactly as they intended I mean, the New England Journal of Medicine just came out with a paper that global warming is causing more fertility problems. So, I mean, it's kind of shadowing the young people could also get blood clots, strokes right. and sudden heart attacks. So, you know, the global warming could do that as well. Um, so I guess global warming could do a lot of different things. I mean, Steve, it's doing that. And it's also, again, the more you inject, the more you infect. I mean, you got to give them credit that they create a circuitous market for their product, that the more they do it, the more it's impossible to achieve immunity because you can get it multiple times then. And then there's more of a clamor to need more of it. And then the more you need it, the fewer guardrails, regulatory guardrails that they place on them. So, I mean, it's just a free-for-all. Right now, here's the thing. Pfizer has broken the last tackle. Okay, there is no backstop. There's no safety to what they're doing. There is nothing at this point that Pfizer could produce. And there's no information we could uh, come up with to demonstrate negative efficacy, potentially destroy every bit of your body. It doesn't matter. We will not move off the military mandate, much less pull it from the market. And you know what? To this day, we still have the same number of senators willing to talk about it. And there's none that aren't named Ron Johnson. So along those lines, what I did want to talk to you about today is something I did discuss at the top of the show. Everybody focused on this soap opera yesterday and this Cassidy chick who a name I'd never heard of. And I I I don't care. I have I just I could not care less. I, I just don't care, which means that I know you care even less than that. But at the same time, this is all going on. Here's what we imagine if 
many of our peers in quote unquote conservative media clamored this hard for the client list for Ghislaine Maxwell, for example. Or here's another thing going on. You mentioned the military mandate. They are said to purge tens of thousands of enlistees, maybe as soon as today. It's a clear violation of the UCMJ. This is an experimental injection. They're not allowed to do this, to mandate it. Um, but they're going to do it anyway because this isn't even about the jab. They're, this is a compliance test. They're testing the ultimate compliance of their soldiers. And and so the soldiers that will be the least inclined to shoot at people like us if we dissent, they'll be purged. And the soldiers that would be the most inclined to just follow orders, they will remain. Tell me I'm wrong on that front. And at the same time that this is going on, on the very same day, we may have the FDA come in and decide we're just going to get rid of controlled group studies when it comes to whatever they want to do to us with COVID. We're just going to institutionalize, quote, COVID exceptionalism at this point. Or if we do do a control group, it'll be it'll be we'll inject people with the with the. The, the for the old variant, which is a little bit like me saying, I'm going to do a, a study on how popular I am. And I'm going to talk to people right now who love me right now. And then my control group are people who have loved me for a long time. And I'm going to then publish a report that says, everybody loves me. Here are the, here's the data. And it's randomly controlled. That's essentially what's going on with the FDA and the military. Or am I wrong? Well, well, well Steve, what you're saying broadly, first politically is that you can never win a boxing match if you decide you're not going to punch. It's not just offense, but it's defense. Because even if you're good at ducking and you know bobbing and weaving out, you're going to get hit eventually. So Republicans will never draw attention to any of these issues. You know, obviously with insurrections, you have how how did they make the narrative about this when they had an attempted assassination on on Kavanaugh? Well, it's the same way you had charges dropped against almost all the Antifa guys that shined lasers at the lights of federal agents in Portland. Um, the P- Portland prosecutors, the federal and state there, they dropped most of the charges. They never make an issue out of it. So, yeah, the narrative is going to be about whatever the left wants it to be about, even if the public is clamoring for change. So that's the political point. I mean, as far as the the vaccines and the shots and everything – I mean, Steve, you talk about my show yesterday. I did a special hour and a half with uh, Maddie DeGary uh, or the mother of Maddie DeGary, the patient zero vaccine injury. This was the first known Pfizer injury. And what we found out was that even for a trial participant, 12 year old, perfectly Hmm. healthy, within 24 hours develops a, a neurodegenerative disease that basically made her paralyzed from her waist down and she cannot um, swallow. She needs a feeding tube. Her life's destroyed. Mm. Okay. And, and this wasn't like the sudden adult death. This was, this was within 24 hours in the trial to this day. They never dealt with them, spoke with them. And to this day, you could look up the trial, the 12 to 15 year old trial and their case is not in there. Their injury is not in there. It's 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 accounted for under abdominal abdominal pain. That's it. Hmm. A stomach ache. Um, it's not in there. They they lied. They fabricated. They couldn't get them treatment, and no. And then even the non cartel doctors wouldn't want to treat them because you can't bill insurance for a vaccine injury because you're not allowed to state that there's a vaccine injury. Um, that's how bad it is. They couldn't get a wheelchair for her for ten months. Wow. Um covered 
nothing, no compensation, no legal help, no medical help. At least you study it, right? Okay, well, you, you signed up for the trial. And then, you know, Steve, I found out yesterday, and the mother didn't know this. I, I looked up the the malady. It's a, it's a form of chronic inflammatory demyelination neuropathy. And you know that Pfizer document, the 38-page document where we know as late, no later than February 2020, they knew of 1,200 deaths and, and nine pages worth of over 1,000 very nasty maladies. This one was on there. It's – I mean this is kind of like, Steve, if you picture Guillain-Barre and Bell's palsy, this is like the pancreatic cancer version of it. This is like that on steroids. Mm -hmm. Really rare and really nasty. It was in there. They knew about it. It's right there. But you know what? Pfizer's not even fighting the document dump anymore. They don't care. It doesn't matter if we find this stuff. So a couple of us nerds on Twitter will pass it around and talk to each other. It doesn't go anywhere. There's literally nothing that could come out about those shots that will matter at this point. I don't know how to follow that. I mean, I don't... I, I don't know how to follow that. It is, it is creating a unique political coalition. So if you're looking for some silver lining, yeah. it is doing that, right? It's, it's not right and left. It's not liberal and conservative. It's people who understand that the institutions of this country, they're not broken. They were broken a long time ago. Then they were taken over. Now they're not broken. We need to break them. They're working very – they're a very well-oiled machine. And this is what and, – and I'm just going to pick out a random name not to pick on one particular person, but it just comes to mind. Andy McCarthy, right? He's bought hook, line, and sinker into the January 6th thing. I just saw a column from him on the Cassidy, whatever her name is, stuff. And it's because – I know in his heart of hearts, he cannot understand – that the FBI is the new Al-Qaeda, and he'll never be able to believe that. And at some point, we reached an inflection point where either you have to believe that or you start buying their lies because there's no middle ground. Mm -hmm. And some of the conservatives of yesteryear have went in that direction, whereas your you know, Naomi Wolf's, RFK Jr.'s, people like that, and even Bill Maher to a certain extent and certain Elon Musk, Joe Rogan, they're like, our government's – the problem. They are the enemy, our federal government, and we need to adjust our politics accordingly. Good stuff, my friend. Always good to see you. All right, take care. Take Don't care. Hey, we'll Happy see you tomorrow board. on the Glenn Beck Show. Oh, that's right. All right, Looking so we'll forward. see you then. All right, thank you. Reaction to the conversation we just had with Daniel. Well, Daniel's uh, pessimism about even with the document dump, they don't care. Again, this this goes hand in hand with my notions of uh, our comfort that has turned us into crack addicts. I call it, it, it is the equivalent. It's no different than going down on the, the corner. You just need your fix. Uh, there, it's really interesting to hear guys like him and, and Steve, who uh, I'm not claiming they're anti-vaxxers now. I hold that label for myself, but have come on this path during covid and daniel's frustration with them not doing anything was where i was 
before COVID with most pharma things, I knew no matter how much I talked about it for most people, right, left, or center, it was just like, I I got other things. And it's it, there are there were other things. But even now, in the face of everything we know, for the exact same psychological dilemma to ex- exists, verifies, if nothing else, that this is, in fact, one of the greatest cults in all of human history. And it's... It, and it's got the smart set locked around its finger. The people they've been waiting for, which are usually the people who fall for the cults. Aaron? And as we've often often said, cults can't be reasoned with. They can't be gotten along with. Eventually, cults must end one way or the other. One way or the other. A lot of times, cults will end themselves. See Jonestown. Sometimes cults must be defeated forcefully. See Japan in World War II. But it is a cult, and you can't coexist with a cult. Because fundamentally, cults don't share reality with you. And it's just one prong, and as we discussed the other day, what's, what's most... Uh, harrowing, I guess. The most, um, the most uh, I, I, daunting about this is that it seems to be bipartisan, meaning Republicans and Democrats alike believe in the magical power of the vaccine. The existing paradigms for something like Roe v. Wade don't exist in this space. So it's just up to enough of us critical thinkers. Maybe we can have uh, enough of a critical mass in order to affect change, but that remains to be seen. That'll do it for today's show. We will see you again on Friday. Remember, we're filling in for Glenn Beck tomorrow. So we'll see you in this time slot on Friday. Until then, John 317. This is Steve Dace. On the Blaze Radio Network. All right, it's my pleasure to welcome to the channel a guy I've known since what, David? 2005, I think. Yeah, probably. The mid-aughts. David Axe was a pioneer in the mill blogging sphere before that was even a thing, really. Um, I was attracted to his writings, always insightful, always provocative, uh, and, and very often first with a subject. He also authored a graphic novel, which was the same title as his blog called War is Boring. Um, And you were kind of first to that format as well. So you've been a number of different places. Now you're writing for Forbes. And you did a couple of items recently that I wanted to discuss. The first is the fact that as the Russian pilots try to avoid the SAM threat, they're uh, winding up hitting the ground. The air defense environment in eastern Ukraine is one of the most dangerous in the world for pilots on both sides of the conflict, uh, and that has had a obvious effect on tactics and outcomes. So we're seeing, and this is not new, but we're seeing Russian and Ukrainian crews flying in incredibly low, uh, fixed-wing aircraft at altitudes of 50 feet, 100 feet, same to survive 
uh, Russian and Ukrainian crews and the, the mill helicopters in this video are Ukrainian are flying very, very, very low. So we've had uh, in recent weeks two visually confirmed uh, crashes of Russian Su-25 attack jets that just plowed into the ground flying to or from Ukraine. So these are non-combat losses, but they occur in the context of intensive air support for Russian operations in eastern Ukraine. So it's the war that destroyed these aircraft, and it's the tactics that the Russian crews have to adopt in order to have any chance of survival that is increasing the risk of accidents like this. You can imagine if I'm a pilot flying around at 100 feet, as you say, scanning for man pads and other SAM threats, you know, I can lose situational awareness, as we say, as to, you know, if I'm looking over my shoulder, I may not notice that my nose is low. Um, the next thing you know, you, you hit the ground. Um, you know, this happens in peacetime, certainly in a high threat area, as you describe both sides, the SAM density now is, uh, is off the page. And the fighting has been ongoing in Eastern Ukraine for eight years now. So both sides have had time to establish defensive positions, but also um, an air defense network uh, that is denser and more dangerous than you would find in, say, southern Ukraine, where the overall density of forces is much, much lower and where the fighting is only a few months old. But what's remarkable, I think, is that Russian bombardment is intensive across all of these fronts. And yet the Ukrainians have managed to sustain their air defense networks. Four months into this war, uh, they have not significantly degraded Ukrainian air defenses. So is this a function of what we've supplied them, um, their learning curve? To what would we attribute that fact? Well, tenacity for one, uh, and also incompetence on the Russian part. It, it's shocking that a, a modern military wouldn't first uh, attempt to suppress enemy air defenses before launching a, a, a wider ground assault. There, there still hasn't been a significant uh, a targeted effort at deliberately dismantling Ukraine's air defenses at any kind of depth. And we're four months into this war. It's not going to happen now. So the Ukrainians are still fighting with mostly with the the air defense equipment that they inherited from the Soviet Union in 1991. Uh, the there there has been an effort by uh, Ukraine's foreign allies to to bolster that network somewhat. The Americans have provided radars. The Germans have pledged, but not yet provided. Um, Iris T medium range service air missiles. Uh, the Americans have uh, are reportedly pledging um, what's called NASM, which is a, a medium range ground launched AMRAAM missile. So there has been some effort to for Ukraine's allies to reinforce this air defense network. Uh, most of that uh, foreign air defense equipment that you're seeing on the battlefield now is the short range stuff, the shoulder fired man portable air defense systems man pads your stingers if you will um it's an easier system to you know to 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 
ship to Ukraine and to train Ukrainians to operate and lower profile diplomatically. So it, it's kind of a no brainer that we already would have provided Ukraine thousands of these man pads. The bigger stuff comes slower and at greater risk to the donors. Point being, the Ukrainians mostly are fighting with their old stuff, their old air defense systems, roughly the same stuff that Russia currently deploys. Not, it's not the Ukraine's foreign allies that the Ukrainians have to thank for the effectiveness of their air defenses. It's their air defenses that they've maintained for 30 years. Well, that's kind of good news, to your point. As this stuff starts to arrive, um, you know, already using their stuff, they're fighting to more or less a stalemate. Um, there have been recent gains by the Russians. The Russians have taken to shelling Kiev again as uh, a, a demonstration they're not done. Um, it may have the reverse effect, as many of their efforts have had since the invasion cooked off on February 23rd. So another thing you've reported on for Forbes recently, and this is along the lines of stuff that we're supplying them, is their first use of HIMARS. And I have some B-roll here of that happening. Nighttime shot, obviously. Very impressive light show. So talk to us a little bit about this. So HIMARS is an American-made six-round 227-millimeter rocket launcher on a truck. Uh, it's a sort of lighter, smaller version of an older tracked system that the U.S. Army adopted in the 1980s called MLRS, Multiple Launch Rocket System. HIMARS stands for High Mobility Artillery Rocket System. Uh, it sets up faster, it's speedier, lighter than, than the tracked model. So HIMARS is rocket artillery. It packs a warhead of several hundred pounds, either a unitary warhead that's one high explosive warhead or submunitions. Uh, there are lots of different rocket models that the HIMARS can fire, including GPS-guided rockets. Uh, the, uh, the rockets that the Ukrainians have acquired appear to be the, the GPS-guided models that can travel about 40 miles. That 40-mile range combined with the speed with which uh, HIMARS can deploy and then escape uh, from its launching point in order to dodge uh, retaliatory fire, counter-battery fire, means that HIMARS is one of the more effective means of, of, of a deep strike, of, of hitting uh, Russian staging areas and logistical nodes behind, far behind, up to 40 miles behind the front lines. It's also, HIMARS also is one of the Ukrainians' better systems for counter-battery. So in an artillery battle where guns are fighting guns, uh, HIMARS is, uh, fires fast enough and far enough to target Russian artillery and um, avoid the Russians' return fire. So Ukraine has so far acquired just four HIMARS systems. Uh, but many more are coming. The, the United States, uh, the White House, pledged an initial four as a proof of concept, trained up the operators, and uh, waited to see how the systems would work in Ukrainian service. That's all been in the past week or so. Um, sorry, the deployment has been in the past week or so. Um, and uh, we've already got U.S. defense officials on record saying they're impressed with the Ukrainians' methods. 
uh, with these launchers. And so more are coming. The White House has pledged an additional four launchers. And uh, the United Kingdom also has pledged uh, the tracked, some of the tracked MLRSs. So you're seeing um, more of these Western made uh, longer range artillery rocket systems trickling into Ukrainian service. And, uh, you know, you shouldn't take a, a, a video circulating on the Internet as uh, as a reliable metric for the combat effectiveness of a particular system necessarily. But uh, it's telling that the Pentagon very swiftly decided, yep, the Ukrainians are using these things well and we should give them more. Well, there was some back and forth before HIMARS was deployed. There was some hesitation by the Biden administration. Uh, Putin ratcheted up the rhetoric saying, if you deploy this, we'll consider that as an escalation and dot, dot, dot. Uh, so it looks like this is playing out in a way that uh, certainly can't make Russia happy, but we're satisfied that the Ukrainians can operate this piece of gear. Is there some sort of tacit or stated guaranteed by the Ukrainians that will not use this system to attack sovereign Russia? Yes, the Ukrainian government has promised not to um, to bombard Russia proper with uh, with HIMARS. Uh, I don't I don't know how rock solid that pledge is. I mean, Ukraine's been running strike operations in in Russia, uh, in the, the border zone with Ukraine since the start of the war. Uh, ballistic missile strikes on airfields, uh, sabotage, that one uh, attack helicopter raid in uh, Belgrade. Uh, where was that? Belgorod, I think, back in uh, April. Yeah. Or when yeah, I did a short episode about that, too. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, Ukraine's already, striking. Ukraine's already striking Russian soil. Uh, whether the Ukrainian army is going to, you know, not fire its HIMARS at targets across the border as a doing the Americans a diplomatic solid. I, I don't, I don't know. I'm off, I'm also not hundred percent convinced the Russians would know that uh, after something blew up, that it was high Mars that did it. So, <laughs> I mean, this has kind of been, check me on this. This has kind of been the war map for some weeks now. Donbass is kind of the center of action. They have not created the land bridge across the south. There's no idea that they would take Odessa. Uh, so we're sort of bogged down here. What we've seen in the past um, month or six weeks has been Russia concentrating the overwhelming majority of its of its of its battalions uh, of the hundred or hundred or so battalions it has in uh, battalion tactical groups it has in Ukraine. Three quarters of them are in eastern Ukraine in the in the Donbas. And only a handful are fighting around Kharkiv or around um, Kherson in the south. So those two fronts are thin. Uh, and while the Ukrainians have also concentrated sufficient forces in eastern Ukraine to at least slow the Russian advance, if not stop it, uh, they've reserved enough, enough forces to uh, continue contesting the border around Kharkiv the Ukrainians, that is, fighting the Russians up to the border uh, and in, in some places pushing them across the border uh, while also advancing in the south. So um, Ukraine is gaining ground in the south in an effort to eventually retake uh, Kherson from the port from, uh, from, from its Russian occupiers uh, while giving up 
some ground in the east, uh, most recently pulling its forces out of Sidra uh, uh, Donetsk um, and, uh, you know, retreating, making a tactical withdrawal west. Um, so Kiev seems to be making a, a, a determination that uh, losing some ground in the east is worth gaining some ground in the south. There's this image that was on Twitter this morning, the font of all truth, right? And it was this general, <laughs> right. <laughs> general Pavel, who's a veteran of Afghanistan. He's 67 years old, and, and oh, apparently he was pressed back into service. And so, as we might imagine, a lot of the, uh, the, the, the military Twitter is having sport with the, you know, body shaming this guy. So on a broader sense... What has been the cost to the overall Russian military? We hear numbers like 30,000 KIA. We hear numbers like a third of their combat power destroyed. What, what do you think is ground truth around those? And how does that net out in, in terms of what is Russia's military power going forward? Let's say this you know, post this conflict? For the initial wider attack on, on Ukraine in February, Russia deployed around 125 uh, what we call battalion tactical groups. I don't want to get into the semantics of what a BTG is because um, a lot of force structure nerds will argue that Russia doesn't use that metric, that they still fight in brigades and divisions. Anyway, NATO uses the term BTG to describe a, a, a Russian task force of around a thousand soldiers, up to a thousand soldiers and say 50 tanks. The Russians deployed 125 of these battalions for plus supporting forces uh, for the initial push into Ukraine in February. By the time of the Russian army's retreat from Kiev six weeks later, outside analysts and some foreign governments were guessing that, that Russia was down about a third of its com of its deployed combat power, the figure for KIAs that we saw around the same time, uh, these are from unofficial sources, uh, was around fifteen thousand. So if you if you assume, which seems reasonable, that well, the several wounded for every KIA, and then also a number of you know captured. I don't know what the ratio would be. Um, it was probably a safe assumption that. By the time the first phase of the war ended, let's just say in mid-April, Russia had lost a, a third to a half of its deployed, of its initial deployed combat power. And I say a third to a half because, and War, you could probably speak to this, um, a, a, a battalion, a ship's crew, a, a squadron cannot lose 20, 30% of its people without suffering as a whole, right? It's a, a, a unit doesn't lose its effectiveness after suffering 100% casualties. You know, you can't discount the emotional and psychological toll of getting beaten and getting hurt and losing your, your, your friends. Uh, so when we say that Russia lost a third to a half of its combat power, it's not just because a sheer number of people were killed. It's because that army got beat around Kiev and it retreated 
um, not always in an orderly manner. Uh, and it was a mess when it got back to uh, to to Russia uh, to Russian Russian territory. The Kremlin managed to redeploy a significant ma uh, proportion of the force that was fighting around Kiev uh, around to to eastern Ukraine to 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 the Donbas. Um, how much of it is is hard to say. Uh, the latest assessments I've seen from, say, the UK Defense Ministry, uh, and well, actually, Pentagon officials have said this too, that Russia still has a hundred battalions in Ukraine. Many of these battalions are probably under strength. Um, many of them are are uh, battalions, sort of, uh, we could probably call them second line battalions, that Russia has pulled from, say, the Far East. Uh, and and sent into Ukraine with older equipment and less training uh, and probably fewer people than the first line full strength battalions that fought in February and March. So, yeah, Russia might still have 100 battalions in Ukraine, but these are probably smaller and weaker and worse battalions than um, the battalions it deployed four months ago. To your point about the... 20% losses and the number of BTGs that, that were committed and got savaged and didn't have a whole lot to throw out the fight. And yet um, he's redefined it, right? We, as you said, the, they retreated from Kiev and now they're in the East, but they're not going away. So the question that I generally ask guests, uh, I, I have Justin Bronk from Rusi on uh, often in his expertise is in air power. But at the end of each session, we'll, we'll, I'll ask him, how do you think it's going to go? So, David, how do you think this is going to play out? Let's do sort of short term and then medium long term. I think the short term dynamic is has is pretty clear and it, it's it's been developing for a couple months now, which is Russian focus on the east uh, that uh, Ukraine is trying to exploit for gains in the south. Uh, and I don't see any reason why that would change anytime soon. It can't change because changing it means shifting forces, which is hard for both armies. So, uh, so I, I would expect to see uh, continued, very modest, and extremely expensive gains for the Russians in the east. There's that pocket of forces, uh, you know, the, that salient sort of stretching from Izium to to um, to the Donetsk River, um, and the Ukrainians seem to be willing to fight a uh, a tactical withdrawal west across that salient to straighten their own lines uh, and make the Russians pay a price to straighten their own lines. So I that salient is going to disappear, and we may see the front line in in the east stabilize uh, both armies uh, in the east are moving slower and slower with fewer and more tired forces and, uh, and both have kind of constantly redefined what victory means across the conflict but specifically in the east um, to match diminishing capacity it's crazy how concentrated the forces are in ukraine in the east uh, there are just a handful of brigades and battalions in the fighting in the south. 
And uh, it seems that Ukraine has the advantage there uh, because we've seen uh, slow progress uh, by Ukrainian forces uh, in the south toward Kherson. Uh, and we're talking about 10 miles, but it's only 40 miles to the city. So in the medium term, maybe that salient straightens out in the east and the lines stabilize. Call me an optimist for the Ukrainians, but I don't I don't see Russia possessing the combat power for a dramatic breakthrough. Uh, certainly doesn't have the combat power to threaten any major population center that they're not already threatening. Um, so, you know, Kharkiv remains encircled kind of, although the Ukrainians have managed to sort of increase the space around that city to minimize the damage that Russian artillery can do. Uh, but that city's 25 miles from the Russian border. So, of course, it's, you know, going to be in artillery range. But Kiev is safe. Odessa is safe. The, there is zero prospect of the Russians mounting an amphibious assault on Odessa or uh, a fresh uh, uh, attack from the north toward Kiev. No way. No way. They had one chance at that. It was a bad idea to begin with, and they failed. Uh, and the, the capacity simply does not exist for the Russians to renew a multi front, a major multi front operation that would include uh, another attempt to 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 occupy Kiev. Just not going to happen. Well, I, they I, can, I, and they are, as we've talked about, uh, increase the rocket attacks, just to sort of the the terrorist effect on civilian centers uh, for the you know, psychological, uh, try to wear down the Ukrainian populace that way. That's certainly in, in the cards for them. I, I don't want the audience to think, because I, I concur exactly what you've said. They had their one shot, they blew it. But that doesn't mean they're going to stop harassing. I mean, they can reach Lviv for that matter, you know, um, if they, and they have, um, you know, with without, you know, manned airplanes or, or trying to, to, you know, push troops forward. So, when you talk about the end state, you know, what what do you see as and again a gross cliche to say an exit ramp, but but what is Putin gonna have to have to you know take his ball and go home? Is it the Donbass? Is it what what is going to be enough where the hostilities can end and you you now get into uh you know sort of a 38th parallel situation? And uh, the war is over. So war is politics. And for the Russians, for Putin, uh, this war is politics. It is, uh, it's, this is not about some kind of just raw calculation about we need land and resources. I mean, this is, the, the whole war in Ukraine is a narrative in support of a narrative about a return to Russian greatness and it's deeply connected to the personal agendas of a handful of powerful corrupt men and with all the levers of power. So guessing how this is going to end requires you to understand Russian politics with greater intimacy than I do and to understand Vladimir Putin with greater intimacy than I do. One way or another, I'll say this, Russia will emerge from this conflict worse and weaker. I'm not convinced that's the case for Ukraine. The economic damage to Ukraine is not hard to assess. We're talking about a GDP drop of half in a year. But the key elements that Ukraine needs to rebuild are still there. A functioning government that arguably is stronger than ever. Uh, and 
access to the Black Sea uh, via Odessa. Um, we can add on top of that now new conditions that didn't exist pre-war, likely EU membership, uh, strengthening NATO's eastern flank, uh, front, if you will, benefits Ukrainian security, ultimately. Yeah. Long so run. it's like a de facto membership. Uh, well, yeah, it's, without, there's without, a strong a strong partnership and relationship between NATO yeah. and Ukraine now. Well, and I mean, that's already happened, right? I mean, again, this is one of the unintended consequences of this invasion from Russia's point of view is they solidified the NATO relationship in a way that had been lacking, which just right. said we could be polite about it, uh, in the previous four or five years. Right. Um, you know, suddenly yeah. Germany wants to pony up more money and Sweden and Finland are, oh, hey, us yeah. too. You know, and, and so these things couldn't have happened without uh, the war on our own. You know? I, I would I should be very clear. I do not think that NATO will offer Ukraine membership. I don't think Ukraine will will in our lifetimes be a member of NATO. I think that even that even after the Russian attack is a bridge too far diplomatically for NATO. But anyway, strengthening and growing NATO still does benefit Ukraine. Um, through a strong partnership that doesn't include membership. Uh, but Ukraine must survive the war for that to happen. But I don't see, I don't, I cannot imagine a scenario in which Ukraine dissolves, where Ukraine is, is categorically defeated, where the Ukrainian government is destroyed, and where, where Russia um, gets to dictate the terms uh, for what Ukraine is, how it's governed, and, uh, and for Ukraine's future. Giving up uh, a few hundred square miles of the east in the end, it's not that big of a deal for Ukraine, uh, as long as it holds Odessa, as long as it has access to the Black Sea, and as long as it has ties to its neighbors that can help it grow in the long term. So I guess what I'm saying is, I don't see how Russia wins this in any uh, rational definition of the term victory. Um capturing a few ruined cities in the east is symbolic of what uh that russia has demilitarized and denazified ukraine uh i'm not sure that those were always fictions to begin with i guess if putin can define modest gains in the east as victory then he could at any point declare victory and quit the war and save his country and his people enormous suffering. Uh, but that assumes that he's wise, compassionate, and rational, which he's not. So I don't, I don't know how this ends. It might not. I mean, we do have to remember that that Russia and Ukraine have been at war for eight years, and it's not impossible to imagine that in another eight years, they will still be at war. And it'll just be this kind of grinding, slow, low intensity, but miserable uh, fighting along a static front line uh, that hurts both countries and benefits no one. So I... I I, that could be the outcome. It just keeps going. But Russia already lacks the, the military capacity for true victory. So, David, it's great to have you on the channel. Uh, we'll look for your writings at Forbes in the weeks to come, and we look forward to having you back 
very soon. All right. It was great talking, Ward. All right. That'll do it for this episode. Don't forget to become a subscriber if you're not one already so you don't miss anything. Give me the likes and comment. Check the links below for merch, including all the ways you can get the Punks Trilogy, including Kindle and audiobook. If you'd like to help support the channel, please consider using the super thanks, the heart icon below, or become a patron at patreon.com slash wardcarroll. In the meantime, I look forward to talking to you again very soon.